Hello, and welcome to Suite 212, putting the arts in their social, cultural, political and historical context here on Resonance 104.4 FM, still London's best and brightest radio station after 20 years on the air. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today we're going to explore the life, work and legacy of the great Iranian poet, writer and filmmaker Farouk Farouksad. Joining me today to discuss this is Gornush Noor. Gornush is the author of The Ministry of Guidance and Other Stories, recently nominated for the Polari Prize. Her first poetry book was published in 2017. Her poetry collection Rock Song will be published in October 2021 by Verve Poetry Press. Gornush's work has also been published in Granta, Columbia Journal and Poetry Anthology amongst others. Gornush has performed her work across the UK and internationally. She teaches creative writing at the University of Reading. She's the co-editor of Magma 80 and the anthology Queer Life, Queer Love, forthcoming from Muswell Press. So Gornush, welcome to Suite 212. Hi, uh, thank you, Juliet. It's a pleasure uh, to be speaking with you today about Farouk um, Barakhzad. Um, who was a poetry genius, as we'll see. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's a figure that's fascinated me for a long time, really. I, I think like a lot of people, I came to her through her film, actually, uh, The House mm. is Black, which is a documentary she made in the 1960s and indeed was the only film that she completed. Um, mm. I think we'll come back to that uh, later. And maybe we could just start with just a quick summary of who Farouk was and, and her importance in Iranian literature. Mm-hmm. So, Farouk Farouksad is one of Iran's most famous and influential poets. Her poetry and persona gave permission to me and many other Iranians to write openly and daringly about longing and desire. Farouk Farouksad's life was turbulent and transgressive, not just because she broke the social norms expected of Iranian women in the 1950s and 60s, but also because she published poetry which questioned the traditional structures of religion, marriage, and gender norms. Indeed, when she was a journalist in her youth, her pseudonym was Bochekan, which means idol breaker. Although the publication of her poetry has been banned since the foundation of the Islamic Republic in 1979, Furuk Farouk's poetry is still a bestseller on Iran's black market. She still has a very strong fan base in Iran, especially within the Iranian queer community. And it's worth mentioning that her younger brother, Feridun, was openly gay and a famous entertainer. Although tragically, a few years after the Islamic revolution, Feridun was murdered in his apartment in Germany. Um, like most Iranians, I also prefer to refer to Furuk Farouk by her first name, Furuk. Um, so I'm just also going to quote a few Iranian scholars um, on Farouk Farouksad and her legacy here, just to contextualize her a bit better. Hamid Dabashi describes Farouk as the most celebrated woman poet in the course of the Persian poetic tradition and the seminal modern Persian poet, regardless of gender. Farzana Milani says about Farouk that her work has been among the most popular in modern Persian literature. Shahim Pishbin explains that Farouk Farouk challenged or even threatened the normative values of her culture, 
innovative and exemplary, her place in the canon of modernist Persian poetry is well established. Um, and bear in mind, erotic poetry has always been an integral part of Persian literature. Passion is a common theme in the works of ancient Persian poets, such as Hafez, Rumi, and Khayyam. But Furuk is the first woman who published her erotic verse. She is considered to be the pioneer of poets who wrote about female desire through the female gaze in Iran. Thanks for that. Yes, that's, um, that's a really interesting intro to her work, I think, and give some idea of, of what made her so important and in lots of ways so transgressive mm -hmm. within this post-war mm. Iranian um, literary scene. Mm. Um, maybe this is a good time to, to, to go back to the beginning then and ask something of Farouk's uh, early life and upbringing and what her route into poetry was. Mm. Uh, Farouk was born in 1935 to a middle-class family in Tehran. Uh, her father was Colonel Farouzad and her mother, Turan Vaziri Tabah. Furuk was one of their seven children and soon earned a reputation for competing with boys and defeating them. She climbed walls, jumped, and howled. Once she entered school, she became infatuated with the poetry of Ferdowsi, especially Shahnameh, Epic of Kings, and other classical Persian poets such as Hafez and Rumi. At the age of 16, Furuk married Parviz Shapur and within a year gave birth to their son, whom she lost two years later in the custody battle due to her love affairs. Uh, the opening line of the poem, Sin, is I have seen the pleasurable sin. Furuk wrote this poem about her affair with Nasser Khodayar, the editor-in-chief of a literary magazine who published derogatory pieces about Furuk after their affair ended abruptly in 1954, until Farouk's family asked him to stop. Shortly after this public shaming in September 1955, Furuk had a mental breakdown and attempted suicide after which she was hospitalized in Rezaei Psychiatric Clinic and received electroshock therapy, which also resulted in some magazines and newspapers to mock her by describing her as insane. Um, I think yeah. we can actually read this poem soon. Yes, I think, I think we will. And um, thank you. Thank you first for that uh, really interesting uh, summary of her, um, her younger life and an upbringing. Yeah. And yes, I think it would be nice to read Sin. Yeah. Um, this is uh, one of the poems, in fact, the title poem of yeah. the collection translated by Shola Wolper. Mm. Um, and I think I'm going to read uh, Wolper's English translation first, mm -hmm. uh, and then you're going to read in Farsi. Yes, I'm going to read the original version. Wonderful. So um, so I'll start here. We haven't done a, a sweet 212 poetry reading for a while. So <laughs> I, will, uh, I, will, I will start here with, uh, with the English version of uh, Sin by Farouk Farouksad. Mm. I have sinned a rapturous sin in a warm inflamed embrace. Sinned a pair of vindictive arms, arms violent and ablaze. In that quiet, vacant dark, I looked into his mystic eyes, found such longing that my heart fluttered impatient in my breast. In that quiet, vacant dark, I sat beside him punch drunk. His lips released desire on mine. Grief unclenched my crazy heart. I poured in his ears lyrics of love. Oh, my life, my lover, it's you I want. 
life-giving arms, it's you I crave, crazed lover, for you I thirst. Lust inflamed his eyes, red wine trembled in the cup. My body, naked and drunk, quivered softly on his breast. I have sinned a rapturous sin beside a body quivering and spent. I do not know what I did, O oh God, in that quiet, vacant dark. Wow, you read that so beautifully. Um, I'm just going to read the original version now. Gunah. گناه کردم گناهی پرز لذت کنار پیکری لرزان و مطهوش خداوندا چه میدانم چه کردم در آن خلوتگه تاریک و خاموش در آن خلوتگه تاریک و خاموش نگه کردم به چشم پرز رازش دلم در سینه بیتابانه لرزید ز خواهش های چشم پر نیازش در آن خلوتگه تاریک و خاموش پریشان در کنار او نشستم لبش بر روی لبهایم حوص ریخ ز اندوه دل دیوانه رستم فرو خواندم به گوشش قصه عشق تو را میخواهم ای جانانه من تو را میخواهم ای آغوش جان بخش تو را ای عاشق دیوانه من حوست در دیدگانش شل افروخ، شراب سرخ در پیمان رقصید، تن من در میان بستر نرم به روی سینهش مستان لرزید. گناه کردم گناهی پرز لذت، در آقوشی که گرم و آتشین بود، گناه کردم میان بازوانی که داغ و کین جوی و آهنین بود. That was the Persian version of the poem. Thank you. It's, it's been a while, even longer, I think, since we've had like a bilingual reading on uh, on here. Um, so it's a real treat to hear Farouk's poetry in the original language. Mm. And, and maybe you'd like to explain to, to listeners and, and to me as well, um, mm. what's what's distinctive about her language in, mm -hmm. in Farsi? Uh, well, in Farsi, and I think that comes across in that translation, that English translation that you just read, quite well it's the the way she plays with rhyme and rhythm and rhyme schemes it's very artful and it has this music uh, so some of most of her early poems including this one they are quite musical and you can hear the music I don't know I'm, I'm sure you could recognize it even in the Persian version as you were listening and the way she plays with alliterations and and sounds like shh and uh, um it, it 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 makes it a bit more um sensual um so it does sound very sensual in farsi well as well as in the english translation but the interesting thing about the farsi poem is that um because farsi is a gender neutral language and we don't use he and she um it's it's kind of like, and, and in English translation, the translator had to go with he uh, based on the, you know, biographical facts. Um, but in, in, in Farsi, so in Farsi, when you read her poetry, it sounds just much more fluid. And, uh, and because there is not that, um, and because so much of it is also about desire and, you know, uh, non-normative desires and emotions and feelings, um, I can see why it's always been so popular within the queer community. Um, and, um, and, and, and she does write a lot about uh, men also, I mean, some of the poems you can tell that it's, 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 she's describing a man, a male lover. 
And um, for instance, those poems are very popular within the Iranian gay community, you know, male gay community. I have many Iranian male gay friends who are uh, really in love with these poems and they really relate to it and they feel it, it speaks for them. Um, and that also makes sense also within the context of her life that she, she had such a transgressive and unconventional life and that, uh, you know, her brother was openly gay and then he, he was murdered and that was after the Islamic revolution, of course. So, um, yeah, so in, in Farsi, I would say it is, it, it just, it sounds queerer in Farsi. Uh, but uh, yeah, that that English translation is 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 as faithful as possible, I would say, to the original text. Well, that's yeah, that's that's really interesting to hear. Obviously, the the ways in which uh, you translate poetry is sort of endlessly up for for debate, and it's always interesting to mm. um, to see different approaches. And it's it's nice to hear from you that uh, that these translations by Charlotte Wolper are um, are so kind of efficient and effective mm. in conveying what's interesting about her mm. her language. Um, maybe this is a good time to talk a little bit more about her, um, her early collections. Um, so Farouk's first poetry collection, The Captive, or Asir in Farsi, was published in 1955. The Captive consists of 42 poems, most of which deal with sexual desire from the female point of view in a sorrowful tone, all composed in classical Persian poetic form. She was so prolific that only a year after that, she published her second poetry collection, The Wall, Divar. Despite her early poetry being dismissed and mocked as traditionally versed erotica, some of Furuk's early poems are modern, feminist, and transgressive in terms of content, in that they unapologetically explored and expressed female sexual desires in the 1950s and often questioned traditional concepts such as religion and marriage. A good example of this poem, uh, a good example of this is a poem called The Ring uh, for, from Farouk debut poetry collection, The Captive. Um, Juliet, would you like to read the English translation of The Ring? Yeah, and um, if you'd like to follow it up with the uh, the Farsi version, I think we, we have time for that. So yes, this is um, this is the ring from Captive again, uh, translated by Shola Volper. Laughing, the girl asked, "What is the meaning of this gold ring? The meaning of this band that my finger that grabs my finger so tightly? The secret meaning of this band so lustrous and aglow?" The man, dumbfounded, replied. It's the ring of good fortune, the ring of life. Everyone said, Mubarak, blessing. She said, alas, I feel uneasy with what you say it means. Years passed and one night, a downcast woman glanced at her gold band and saw in its lustrous glow, days wasted, wasted, waiting for her husband's fidelity. Distraught, she sighed, fire, fire. This band, so lustrous and aglow, is the clamp of bondage, of slavery. Halqe. Dokhtarak khandekonan goft ke chis raze in halqe zar. Raze in halqe ke angusht mara. In chenin tang gerefte ast bebar. Raze in halqe ke dar chehre u. In hame tabesh o rakhshandegi ast. 
مرد حیران شد و گفت حلقه خوشبختی است حلقه زندگی است همه گفتند مبارک باشد دخترک گفت دریقا که مرا باز در معنی آن شک باشد سالها رفت و شبی زنی افسرده نظر کرد بر آن حلقه زد دید در نقش فروزنده او روزهایی که به امید وفای شوهر به هدر رفته هدر زن پریشان شد و نالید که وای وای این حلقه که در چهره او باز هم تابش و رخشندگی است حلقه بردگی و بندگی است Yeah, and I mean, it's it's a really fascinating work to pull out because it's it's so um, it's so upfront in its criticism of uh, you know marriage as an institution and of the um, yes. gender norms that that uphold yeah. it. Yes, and can you imagine she wrote this in the 1950s in 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 Iran? So uh, she was really ahead of her time. Uh, I mean, some of the stuff, some of her poems um, still sound quite transgressive, even by the standards today. Uh, so, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, it I was, yeah. It was, I just, just wanted to sort of say a bit more about the, the politics of the time. I mean, Iran was a, a society in quite a lot of flux at this point, right? Mm. I mean, the... The, um, the British and the Soviets um, mm. leave at the end of the, or just after the Second World War. Mm. Um, and of course, the um, elected leader, uh, Mohammad Mossadegh, is overthrown in a, in a coup mm. in 1953. Um, and then the Shah takes over again. Mm. Um, I don't know if there's any more to say just about the type of society that she mm. was writing into in the 1950s after these mm. sort of political upheavals. I mean, it was just the usual, you know, in terms of, you know, women's rights and queer rights, you know, LGBTQ rights. Of course, these discourses didn't even exist back then, especially in Iran. Um, and she was really outspoken about women's rights. Um, of course, she lived before the Islamic Revolution. Um, I wouldn't want to say it like this. Perhaps it would be a bit insensitive to say it like that. But it, in in some way, she had a lucky escape <laughs> because she didn't live long enough to see the revolution. I think she would have been, of course, obviously devastated and shocked uh, by what happened after the Islamic Revolution. You know, in terms of women's rights. Uh, so. Um, Uh, but even then, the society and the rules, they, they, they were still pretty misogynistic, even though it was before the Islamic Revolution. Um, so, yeah, we didn't have compulsory hijab, but the, the society itself was still extremely misogynistic. And, uh, and also the way the society also treated her, um, as, I, as I explained in her uh, when, I was, um, uh, when I was reading from her biography, Um, she was. She also had to deal with a lot of misogyny as well, uh, just to you know, just to survive and to prosper as a as the brilliant, a unique poet that she was. Yeah, and I know that um, she spent a bit of time traveling in in Europe in the sort of mid to late uh, mm. 1950s, and this had uh, some impact on her subsequent mm. poetry and the. The themes mm -hmm. it explores. So maybe this is a good time to move on to discussing her next next collection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in 1958, her third poetry collection, Rebellion or Ocean in Farsi, was published. 
although this collection is quite similar to her first two collections and is usually lumped with them under Fool's early poetry and erotica, there is a shift towards existential matters such as God, life and death. In this collection, Furuk starts to question the figure of God, whilst adopting a more celebratory tone when describing her sexual desires and adventures. Unlike the previous two collections, she does not have an apologetic tone towards God, but rather a more interrogating one. Pleasure, in particular sexual pleasure, is one of the main themes of Farrokhzad's early poetry. Although this pleasure is often stained by a fear of God in her first two collections, in Rebellion she started to adopt a more fearless tone towards God and religion. Uh, and we can see that um, we can illustrate this point really well after you read the English translation of Rebellious God. Yes, thank you. Um... Yeah, this is, this is a fascinating poem, so I'm just going to go straight into it. Yeah. If I were God, I'd call on the angels one night to release the round sun into the darkness's furnace, angry command the world garden servants to prune the yellow leaf moon from the night's branch. At midnight among the curtains of my divine palace, I'd upturn the world with my furious fingers and turn my hands, tired of their thousand-year stillness, I'd stuff the mountains and the sea's open mouths. I'd unbind the feet of a thousand fevered stars, scatter fire's blood through the forest's mute veins, rend the curtains of smoke so that in the wind's roar, fire's daughter can throw herself drunk into the forest's arms. I'd blow into the night's magic reed until the rivers rise from their beds like thirsty serpents and weary of a lifetime of sliding on a damp chest pour into the dim marsh of the night sky. Sweetly, I'd call on the winds to release the flower perfume boats on the rivers of night. I'd open the graves so that myriad wandering souls could once again seek life in the confines of bodies. If I were God, I'd call on the angels one night to boil the water of eternal life in hell's cauldron, and with a burning torch chase out the virtuous herd that grazes in the green pastures of an unchaste heaven. Tired of being a prude, I'd seek Satan's bed at midnight and find refuge in the declivity of breaking laws. I'd happily exchange the golden crown of divinity for the dark, aching embrace of a sin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's uh, that's Shola Volpa again. It's powerful stuff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You you read it really beautifully. Thank you. That was you 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 channeled the rebelliousness and the glory of the poem. It's a very glorious poem, isn't it? It's very glorious, very confrontational and uh, unapologetic. And and in Farsi, I believe it sounds even more glorious. So I'm just gonna read the original version called Osiana Khoda. گر خدا بودم ملائک را شبی فریاد می کردم سکه خورشید را در کوره ظلمت رها سازند خادمان باغ دنیا را روی خش می گفتم برگ زرد ماه را از شاخه ها جدا سازند نیمه شب در پرده های باگاه کبریای خیش پنجه خشم خروشانم را زیر و رو می ریخ. دست های خسته ام بعد از هزاران سال خاموشی 
کوها را در دهان باز دریاها فرو میریخت میگشودم بند از پای هزاران اختر تبدار میفشاندم خون آتش در رگ خاموش جنگل ها میدریدم پرده های دود را تا در خروش باد دختر آتش برقصد مست در آغوش جنگل ها مینویدم در نی افسونی باد شبانگاهی تازه بستر رودها چون مارهای تشنه برخیزند خسته از عمری به روی سینه مرتوب لغزیدن در دل مرداب تار آسمان شب فرو ریزند بادها را نرم میگفتم که بر شت شب تبدار زورق سرمست عطر سرخ گلها را روان سازند گورها را میگشودم تا هزاران روح سرگردان بار دیگر در حصار جسم ها خود را نهان سازند گر خدا بودم ملائک را شبی فریاد می کردم. آب کوسر را درون کوزه دوزخ به جوشانند. مشعل سوزنده در کفگله پرهیزکاران را از چراگاه بهشت سبز دامن برون رانند. خسته از زهد خدایی نیمه شب در بستر ابلیس در سراشی به خطایی تازه می جستم پناهی را. میگزیدم در بهای تاج زرین خداوندی لذت تاریک و در دالود آغوش گناهی را Thank you Gunesh for that beautiful reading uh, so listeners what you just heard is a the Farsi version of um, Rebellious God a poem by the the great Iranian uh, poet and writer and filmmaker Farouk Farouxad um, who is the subject of this today's discussion on Sweet 212 here on uh, Resonance 104.4 FM. Um, so I'd like to move the, the conversation on now. I just, just mentioned Farouk Farouk's filmmaking. And I think um, for, for a lot of um, English speaking listeners, um, her, her short documentary, The House is Black, might be a way into, into her work and might be the thing mm -hmm. that people are, are the most familiar with. Um, This was, this was made after she met and fell in love with another um, Iranian writer and, and filmmaker, Ebrahim uh, Golestan, who was, who was a married man, but the two uh, embarked on an intense and passionate love affair. Uh, there were rumors that this uh, was, was actually unrequited love, but Golestan, um, who's still alive and living mm. in, in the UK, um, came out, I think, in 2017 and said that, no, they... The two of them were lovers. He also uh, put to bed, um, I think, quite misogynistic rumors that he had uh, written or co-written some of Farouk's poetry. And, mm. and he said, you know, quite, um, I think, quite rightly taking quite an aggressive attitude towards this line of questioning, said, look, if I were to write such beautiful poetry, why wouldn't I put my own name to it? Mm. Um, But he, he did introduce her to sort of various Western modern uh, literary movements that undoubtedly did have a, a big influence on, on her, her poetry. Um, and he also gave her a job uh, answering phones in his office. Mm. Uh, one thing led to another. And um, Farouk went to England to study film production uh, mm. and then came back and, and worked with, with Golestan on uh, one of his best known films, which is a brilliant film called, uh, called A Fire. Uh, a 25-minute documentary made uh, in 1961, which um, documents a, a fire in uh, an oil field in southern Iran in the late 1950s that burned for months, I think, as sort of documents the efforts to, to put it out. It's, it's a genuinely extraordinary film. It's, uh, it's quite poetic. Um, I've only been able to find 
a version with a with an English voiceover, which I think maybe maybe loses loses something in in that translation. But nonetheless, it's um, it's a really brilliant film, um, and uh, Farouk Farouk uh, edited uh, this film and then moved from there to to her directorial debut, which was mm. was The House Is Black, mm. um, which is about the patients in a leprosarium in a in a deserted town uh, in uh, Tabriz mm. uh, in Iran um, it's a film it's about 20-25 minutes in length there's, there's different cuts of it in circulation but it was shot over 12 days and um, it won the best documentary award at the Oberhausen Film Festival in 1963 and um, it still has a has a pretty mighty reputation I think um, yeah. Moshe Makhmobaf called it the best Iranian film to have affected the contemporary Iranian cinema and yeah. it was made it was made during I think quite a strong period the 1960s quite a strong period in um, in Iranian film um, before the the kind of renaissance of Iranian cinema in the in the 1990s that people like Makhmobaf and uh, Jafar Panahi and Abbas Kiristami were part yeah. of uh, indeed um, Kiristami's film uh, the Wimble Carrius, made in 1999, um, is named after uh, one of Farouk's poems. You see her influence mm. there as well. But I mean, the film, the film also had um, impact outside of Iran. Um, Chris Marker uh, compared it to Louis Bunuel's 1933 film, The Land Without Bread or Las Herds. Um, and yeah, Marker, of course, was, was an extraordinary documentary maker. So I think having having his approval of the film would have meant an awful lot to, to Farouk. Um, I mean, just, just to quote a little bit from the, from the film, which, um, which she narrated herself, the narration incorporates uh, quotes from the Quran and Psalms from the Old Testament. And it moves between thanksgiving for the beauty of creation and this kind of sadness at, at physical suffering, which the film really doesn't flinch from. It's very upfront in showing, um, showing the, the difficulties that these people are living with. And indeed, the opening line says in English, the translation reads, there is no shortage of ugliness in the world. Mm. If man closed his eyes to it, there would be even more. Mm. Uh, and this opening shot that accompanies that sort of emblematic of her approach, you get a medium shot of a woman with leprosy, with her face partially covered by a veil, and the camera is sort of slowly uh, coming into a close-up of her reflection. So you're not just looking at the woman, but you're sharing sharing her gaze at herself and you know it's it's very empathetic film and this is quite mm. typical of of Farouk's approach I think mm. um I mean the the film does sort of intercut this narration mm. uh with with a male voice that provides sort of objective facts about leprosy and its treatment that it's contagious mm. and not hereditary and mm. it's not incurable uh, but that it often goes with with poverty and indeed there's a sort of mm. emphasis throughout on on the scientific care needed to heal people mm. um so it's this kind of very poetic treatment but it's also very factual it's a very sensitive mm. film um mm. and you know it's 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 very it's a very humane mm. humane film and it's it's very notable for um for that reason. Uh, I mean, it is, of course, also the only film she she ever made. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm not really able to find much. I, I don't know if you've, your research has turned up anything, uh, but I've not really found much evidence that she was planning to work on any more, any more films. Um, mm. uh, yeah, I'm not too sure. I think her main passion in life was poetry. 
but uh, apparently she was also doing some, you know, some uh, minor acting and stuff like that. She was kind of a bit, maybe she was dabbling in that as well. But that, I, I don't think that was, it was that serious to her. I'm not sure, but maybe, um, especially because of Ebrahim Kolestan, maybe she, she was taking cinema more seriously. Definitely her documentary is a serious work of art and it's, a, it's such a poetic documentary and the way she narrates it and the way she reads it, she reads it like a poem and it's so beautiful and her words are they're very, uh, you know, it's not just, you know, the, 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 the factual discourse, the factual language of, a, you know, your typical documentary. So when she uses poetic language to talk about something really dark and horrific. Um, so uh, certainly, you know, I'm, I'm sure she was, you know, very, serious about cinema as well but she didn't have time I mean she died at the age of 32 so god knows what would have been if she had been alive so yeah I mean you certainly get the feeling that film might have been something she she came back to later yeah. in, uh, later in life and, and possibly something that was, was also a way of just making money to finance her, yeah. her poetry uh, yeah. and I know she did direct one or two um, television commercials as well and, yeah. and you know this may have been May have been something that was um, was partly motivated by sort of financial concerns, but um, you know that's with with the house is black. It certainly is is like you say an incredibly serious work mm -hmm. of art, and it's one of the very very few short films, uh, along with Chris Marker's La Jetée, um, to appear on the British Film Institute's like top two hundred and fifty films of of mm -hmm. all time, which I think is testament to the amount of you know kind of beauty and intelligence and and thoughtfulness it packs into those kind of 20 25 minutes mm. um maybe this is a good place then to bring her bring our conversation background to Farouk's poetry then and the rest of her life uh, starting with the um poetry collection that she brought out in the same year as the house is black so in 1962. Mm -hmm. so that's her fourth poetry collection um called Tavallodi Diyar, which literally means another birth. Uh, Shola Volpa has translated it as reborn. And it's distinctly different from the previous three collections in terms of form, style, and content. Uh, the poems are not composed in the classical Persian rhyme schemes. Instead, Furo has adopted the Nimaic blank verse, the poetic form in free verse pioneered by Nima Yushich that was dominating the Persian poetry scene at the time. Uh, this collection has a modernist structure and in terms of language and the use of literary devices, it is much more innovative and original as it is, it is full of eccentric, extended metaphors, tangible, vibrant and eerie imagery and linguistic witticisms that have become a part of Farsi. Um, for instance, this is an instance of a strong extended metaphor uh, an image from her poem, Those Days. Just a few lines. Those days are gone, as uprooted plants wilt in the sun. Those days too, rotted in sunlight. And that's again Walpa's translation uh, of one of her famous poems in, in the, from the fourth poetry collection. And uh, this, po this collection, Another Birth, is also for us lengthiest uh, collection. And uh, it's also interesting in terms of Farrokhsa's feminism, 
because her feminism comes across as more confident and confrontational in this one, especially with one of her poems called Wind Up Doll, in which she blatantly questions male authority, female subordination and, and gender binaries. Um, um, so would you, and it, in fact, it's this collection and her fifth collection, Let Us Believe in the Dawn of the Cold Season, uh, posthumously published in 1974, that elevated Fulf's reputation from a sensual poetess to one of the greatest poets of uh, Persian modernism. Uh, now, Juliet, would you like to read one of the English translation of one of the poems that I just mentioned, Wind Up Doll, um, which is from her fourth poetry collection? Yeah, I think for reasons of time, we'll just have the um, the English version here. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, I will uh, I will read this again in uh, Shola Volper's translation. So yeah. Wind Up Doll. Mm. Even more, oh yes, one can remain silent even more. Inside eternal hours, one can fix lifeless eyes on the smoke of a cigarette, on a cup's form, the carpet's faded flowers, or on imaginary writings on the wall. With stiff claws, one can whisk the curtains aside, look outside, it's streaming rain. A child with a balloon bouquet cowers beneath a canopy. A rickety cart flees the deserted square in haste. One can remain fixed in one place, here, beside this curtain, but deaf, but blind. With an alien voice, utterly false, one can cry out, I love, in the oppressive arms of a man, one can be a robust, beautiful female, skin like leather tablecloth, breasts large and hard. One can stay in the sinlessness of love, in the bed of a drunk, a madman, a tramp. One can cunningly belittle every perplexing puzzle, alone, occupy oneself with crosswords, content with unimportant words, yes, unimportant letters, no more than five or six. One can spend a lifetime kneeling, head bowed, before the cold altar of the imams, find God inside an anonymous grave, faith in a few paltry coins. One can rust inside a mosque's chamber, an old woman, prayers dripping from lips. Whatever the equation, one can always be a zero, yielding nothing, whether added, subtracted or multiplied. One can think your eyes are buttons from an old ragged shoe caught in a web of anger, one can evaporate like water from one's own gutter. With shame, one can hide a beautiful moment, like a dark instant photo, rammed deep into a wooden chest. Inside a day's empty frame, one can mount the portrait of a condemned, a vanquished, a crucified, cover the gaps in the walls with silly, meaningless drawings. Like a wind-up doll, one can look out at the world through glass eyes, spend years inside a felt box, body stuffed with straw, wrapped in layers of dainty lace. With every salacious squeeze of one's hand, for no reason one can cry, ah, how blessed, how happy I am. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's- Sorry, I couldn't help it. <laughs> an astonishingly powerful poem, isn't it? And it's, um, yeah. it's exactly as you say, it's, it's incredibly um, forthright and it's, criticism yeah. of, of of gender roles in in yeah. in the society she was living in in, in post-war Iran yeah um and yeah I mean it's it's obviously it makes it all the more tragic that that's one of her one of her late works mm. um 
she she died in February 1967 on the uh, on the 13th she was returning from visiting her mother and she mm. swerved her jeep to avoid hitting a school bus and was thrown out of the car and her head hit the pavement and she died immediately at the age of age of 32 so mm. so that obviously brought her her life and career to you know an incredibly uh, abrupt and tragic end mm. uh, but there was there was one more uh, collection published posthumously wasn't there Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Her fifth poetry collection. Um, so Farouk Farouk's fifth poetry collection, Imam Biyavarim Ba'aghaz Fasl Sad, which, which means let us believe in the dawn of the cold season, was written in 1965, but was uh, posthumously published in 1974. And this collection really solidified her reputation as one of the greatest poets in Iran. Um, the first poem in the collection is the title poem, a great example of modernist poetry due to its content and techniques. The sense of doom, apocalypse, frustration, disappointment, and gloom in this long free verse has been expressed through unique and cryptic images. Uh, the Iranian uh, scholar and Furuk researcher Jasmine Darznik has likened this poem to Eliot's The Wasteland. Um, I'm just going to read an extract from this poem, just from Walpa's translation. Hollow human, hollow trusting human. Look at his teeth singing as they chew and his eyes devouring as they stare and how he passes the wet trees patiently, heavily lost at the hour of four. At the very moment his blue veins wrapped about his throat like dead snakes, pound his angry temples with those blooded syllables. Salam, salam, which means hello in Farsi. And many believe that this poem and the whole collection was a dark prophecy of Farouk Farouk's sudden and tragic death, especially the famous final poem of the collection, The Bird Shall One Day Die, and its final lines that have become a Persian proverb, uh, preserve the memory of flight, the bird, shall one day die. Many also claim that this dark collection was a prophecy of Iran's political future, especially in the light of the Islamic revolution, as the poem is imbued with dark political symbolism, particularly one of its most well-known poem, I Pity the Garden, which I hope you have time to read for us in English, Julia. Yes, I will read the uh, the Shole Volpa translation. Yeah. Um, I think we just have time for the English version, yeah. sadly. But um, yeah, I'll read, I'll read that now. So this is I Pity the Garden. No one thinks of the flowers. No one thinks of the fish. No one wants to believe the garden is dying, that its heart has swollen in the, heart of the, in the heat of this sun, that its mind drained slowly of its lush memories. Our garden is forlorn. It yawns, waiting for rain from a stray cloud, and our pond sits empty. Callow stars bite the dust from atop tall trees, and from the pale home of the fish comes the hack of coughing every night. Our garden is forlorn. Father says, my time is past, my time is past. I've carried my burden. I'm done with my work. He stays in his room from dawn to dusk, Read history of histories or Fedowski's Epic of Kings. Father says to mother, damn every fish and every bird. When I'm dead, what will it matter if the garden lives or dies? 
my pension is all that counts. Mother's life is a rolled out prayer rug. She lives in terror of hell, always seeks sin's footprints in every corner, imagines the garden sullied by the sin of a wayward plant. Mother is a sinner by nature. She prays all day, then with her consecrated breath, blows on all the flowers, all the fish, and all over her own body. She awaits the promised one and the forgiveness he is to bring. My father calls the garden a graveyard. He laughs at the plight of the grass and ruthlessly counts the corpses of the fish rotting beneath shallow water's dead skin. My brother is addicted to philosophy. He sees the healing of the garden in its death. Drunk, he beats his fists on doors and walls, says he is tired, pained and despondent. He carries his despair everywhere, just as he carries his birth certificate, diary, napkin, lighter and pen. But his despair is so small that each night it is lost in crowded taverns. My sister was a friend to flowers. She would take her simple heart's words when mother beat her to their, kylan, to their, si to their kind and silent gathering. And sometimes she would treat the family of fish to sunshine and cake crumbs. She now lives on the other side of town in her artificial home and in the arms of her artificial husband, she makes natural children. Each time she visits us, if her skirt is sullied with the poverty of our garden, she bathes herself in perfume. Every time she visits, she is with child. Our garden is forlorn. Our garden is forlorn. All day from behind the door come sounds of cuts and tears, sounds of blasts. Instead of flowers, our neighbours plant bombs and machine guns in their garden soil. They cover their ponds, hiding bags of gunpowder. The schoolchildren fill their backpacks with tiny bombs. Our garden is dizzy. I fear the age that has lost its heart, the idleness of so many hands, the alienation in so many faces. I am like a schoolchild madly in love with her geometry books. I am forlorn and imagine it is possible to take the garden to a hospital. I imagine, I imagine, and the garden's heart has swollen in the heat of this sun, its mind slowly drained of its lush memories. Wow, beautiful. It's, it's a stunning, a stunning piece, and it's, it's kind of easy to understand why um, that poem and this collection should become a kind of cornerstone of, of her mm -hmm. legacy. And we've got, we've got just under 15 minutes left now. So I think this is, this is maybe a good time to to discuss mm. discuss her legacy mm. um, and you know the the fact that um, her final poems were sort mm. of written exploring mm. modern Tehran and exploring uh, the rule of the Shah who took over from Masadik and some of mm. the difficulties of of making a living. Mm. Um, I mean, she was. She began a translation of George Bernard Shaw's Saint Joan mm. uh, in 1966, which I think. Uh, was was never completed. So really, her reputation rests on uh, these these five volumes of poetry mm -hmm. and um, and the House is Black in particular. Um, and that was enough for her poetry to be banned after the Islamic mm. Revolution in 1979. Um, her mm. publisher refused to stop printing her work and was sent to prison. Mm. And the factory was burned to the ground. But the the work's still quite widely read, isn't it? Yes, because you can find it. I have. I took a photo actually when I was in Iran in 2018. I took a photo of a, a street bookseller because you can always see Farouk's book. There's always a collection of Farouk Farouk's poetry 
uh, and you, I don't think you can find it in bookshops, but like everywhere you go when you're buying books, uh, you you can uh, you can find it. It's always especially like street booksellers. They always sell a copy uh, or two of her works. And um, in fact, I can show you my copies, the one I read from. Uh, but sadly, the listeners won't be able to see. Uh, but yeah, this is how I got this copy, for instance, because it's really easy to find and it's everywhere and it's still really popular. And she really has a status of a really of like a rock star in Iran, not really a poet, because poets, uh, if you if you think here of a poet, they're usually just very popular within literary circles, you know, within uh, somehow even in elitist circles. But in Iran, that, that's not the case, especially not with Furuk, because she was also because of her persona and she's because she's such a divisive figure. So people either worship her as this like goddess of, of desire and poetry or uh, or really loathe her and, and, and you still call her like a whore and, and stuff like that. Uh, our supreme leader made some interesting comments about her because, as you might know, he he he's a failed poet, <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, we need to be careful <laughs> about poets' egos. Um, so uh, he, when he had a surgery a few years ago, uh, somebody mentioned uh, and he was talking about poetry because he knows so much poetry and he's read so much poetry, and uh, he even he said Furuk's poetry is really good, and I I just hope let's just hope God forgives her sins uh, because you can't you can't acknowledge that you can't acknowledge her place you you can you can you know you can dislike her and call her names but you cannot uh, you cannot dismiss the 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 effect and her legacy and the influence that she's had on the, pretty much everyone in the society and the way she was just even in this final in this uh, later poem I pity the garden it's quite clear that she's criticizing like uh, you know all these heteronormative rules and the nuclear family and all these like traditional structures and she lived like that she she lived according to her beliefs and uh that is still yeah and that makes her an icon even today um so yeah but it was interesting one thing i noticed as you were reading the, the this ipt the garden because you know every time you really find something new in it it's actually quite a cinematic it's a cinematic poem it's very visual and also you have like characters it's like watching a film you have the characters and characterization the brother is addicted to philosophy and and the uh, and the mother is a sinner by nature and um, she's religious and we can see that we are shown the religion we, sh we are shown the tradition that doesn't work the artificial husband of the sister uh, it's um, yeah I, I, and I can see the effects of cinema actually in her later poetry now. That's that's quite interesting. I I just noticed that. So, <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, um, Farouk is is a is a writer um, and filmmaker and a person who means a lot to you. And we've we've got just under ten minutes left, so uh, maybe it'd be nice to hear a bit more about her influence on 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 your poetry and your work. Uh, yeah, well, I was a I was a teenager when I first um, encountered her poetry, and I was um, I was mesmerized uh, 
uh, not not just by the by the way she expressed her desires, but also her use of imagery and language, uh, especially in her later poetry. Um, I have, in fact, I've written a poem uh, which will be in Rock Song, my forthcoming poetry collection, and I would like to read that. And I hope the the influence is quite clear in that one. Um, it's called Sunlit Suicide in the Bathtub, after Furuk Farokzad. All I want is a sunlit suicide in the bathtub because I am sick. My intensity is my only friend and my enemy, like mother who murdered me. Can you make tea and step on me? There are thoughts stuck in my throat that won't let me breathe, and mother insists I'm obsessed with sinning. Did you make tea? Can we sin already? Do you still fancy me naked, shivering on a rainy beach? Will you tell my mother that sinning is nothing to me? That to me, the concept of sin is as expired as that rancid carcass in her fridge. Ask her to stop discussing politics with me. Inform her that I'm more interested in counting numbers that don't exist. Don't make tea, just leave me. Why is my intensity stuck to me like chewed gum on a dry rock? like screams on mother, like grief on family, like my sins on your flesh, like my thoughts on my throat. My intensity makes me bleed, but my blood is not horrific. My blood is white, like cum, as innocent as your throat. Would you like some? Where is my tea in your dirty mug? I have been stuck in this bathtub for years now, but I still feel unclean. I think I might be sick. It could be the tea, the weak English tea that's made me sick. But I admit, I've always been sick. I've always liked to listen to insects have sex. I want to plunge my nails in the garden of your neck. I want you to embrace me like a bathtub in spring. I am sick. I like to repeat something until my teeth break. The paler your neck, the darker my lips. The water in this tub is either too hot or too cold, which makes me want to drown something or someone. Can you feel my explosions? My head throbs, an open wound in whose blood I swim. My sins are a storm and they've made me sick. I still relish the sight of your skin, but turn off the sun, please. Life underwater is serene. I escape and hospitalize myself in my room underneath my bed. The heater is exploding, but I am still shivering under my many duvets. I can hear mother scream. This was meant to be our empire. Instead, it's a dead end of wars, a murder scene. This is when our mothers emerge in our nightmares, informing us that all empires end in blood, rage, and murdered glory, that all empires die before they begin. And wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's really, again, a really, really powerful piece. And I can definitely feel uh, Phil Farouk's uh, influence there in, in the themes and in the, the choice of language, um, yeah. but also the kind of the rhythm and the, the meter that you're you're working to. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I hope that this poem is worthy of being dedicated to her. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was directly influenced by her. So, yes. <laughs> Yeah, um, we've got just uh, just a few minutes, a few minutes left, and I'm not quite sure how we should uh, should wrap up. Really, 
Uh, I can read my tribute to Tehran, which is where Furuk was born and lived all her life. Although this is post-revolutionary Tehran, so this is more my kind of Tehran. But she she's directly referenced also in the book, in the poem, sorry, not the book. Sure. Shall I read that? It's called The Wicked Capital. Tehran means reading never-ending Russian novels under my duvet, glitterless gay parties until the morning as on until the birds scream. Mahogany cafe serving cinnamon tea and vanilla ice cream. Tehran is smoke and fury. It is fuming. Tehran is static traffic. It is also fenugreek. All girls schools, all boy love and compulsory hijab. And the evergreen Shahid Beheshti University where we exchange gay kisses. But gay did not mean happy. It meant homo, whore, harassed, faggot, corrupt, beautiful. The university whose rules we shattered in our attempts to become Lord Byron, a garden that is still shining, a neon green sun in the northwest of Tehran that inhaled our ashes while we smoked our youth and spat colonial classics, empowering ourselves. Now the question is, will we ever be truly empowered? We, the despondent snobs from the top universities of Iran who ended up in the bottom universities of Brexit land, dump land, the North Pole, doing degree after degree after degree. So they, we, they can forget our skin color and forgive our accent, even though we are pale like flower and quiet like infected parrots. Will we ever be empowered? In Tehran, we are still powerless, even though it is officially our homeland, our sealess port. Tehran, the harbor of pollution where fast cars screech American pop in ambivalent alleyways paved with martyrs' blood. I have never seen a city capable of containing so much love and hate. Tehran is my parents and our house, my siblings and my best friend, his passion for beautiful boys and avant-garde theater and the scenario of our eternal escape. Tehran is my grandmother, cherry pickles that she made just for me with specifically rotten sour cherries that surprisingly tasted like God. Her God that was not my God and became a gap that devoured our love. Tehran is my real room, my bookshelf, my vanity table, crowded with bottles of blue varnish, my first rainbow flag. Tehran is aromatic, herbs, saffron, dried lime, turmeric, salt, bloody beans, red meat, brown flesh, after Persian cuisine, nothing tastes great. Tehran is Arabic prayers and Persian poetry. Bookshops floating in the sizzling summer streets. Furuk Faroksa, Sohrab Seferi and Sada Khadayat, but also preposterous books such as bad translations of American self-help and mind camps. Everything for a cheap price. And the everlasting question, how can this country survive when Hedayat killed himself and Furuk died at such a young age? I'm going to finish there. Uh, there are three more stanzas, but we're running out of time. And also, people can read the rest of the poem in my forthcoming poetry collection. So, Well, you've, you've saved me the job both of summing up the show and of, uh, <laughs> reminding people that uh, rock, <laughs> rock Song is out in, uh, in October. Um, I think that's a really lovely place to uh, conclude, our, uh, conclude our discussion. So, Gunashna, um, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Juliet. It's been an honor and a pleasure to be on your show. Absolutely. Um, absolutely has. So, um, listeners, I've been your host, Juliet Jakes. Um, just a reminder, you can find us on Twitter at sweet underscore 212, SoundCloud at sweet dash 212, and on iTunes. Uh, Resonance is having its summer break uh, in August, as is uh, 
as is as is usual for the station. So um, we'll be back on this station in September, but we hope to have some more shows for you uh, over the summer break as well. So thanks a lot for listening. Take care. Goodbye.